This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to Stephen Moffat. Now, I know you're safe and well and you're indoors somewhere, but indoors where, Stephen? I'm indoors in my house, like an awful lot of people are, uh, in, my, in my study where I normally work and where I've been continuing to work. Uh, so, uh, yes, all final good here. Um, it's it, isn't it boring? But, uh, <laughs> but that's the worst that I've had. I've I've had boredom. Well, I sent you a video link, and hopefully that might have cheered you up a little bit. But it was for the penultimate episode of Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner. An episode which first aired in the UK, actually on Scottish television, on the evening of Thursday, 25th of January 1968. A rare case where, except for viewers in Scotland, didn't equate to bad news. Now, Stephen, before you'd even watched it, what was your reaction to the prospect of, well, I know re-watching it, you've seen this before, but were you quite into the idea of looking at this episode again? Yes, because, uh, I mean, I've got a, I mean, I love The Prisoner, I absolutely loved it. Uh, and I remember when it was first on in Scotland, uh, not first on in Scotland, the second time it was on in Scotland, mm. clearly, about 10 years after its original broadcast, I had to go on holiday uh, just as the series was coming to its end, or about four or five episodes from there. Mm. Uh, and we weren't allowed television on holiday in those primitive days because we were in a caravan and it was regarded as bad form to watch television. <laughs> uh, so I, I never saw it. I never saw what happened at the end. So I was... When it finally got repeated again, I think on Channel Four, I finally got to see all that, and um, and I I was apprehensive. I was apprehensive the first time round on this episode because I hadn't loved a few of the ones towards the end as much mm-hmm. as I'd loved the previous ones, uh, and but I really did like this one. Uh, and I, I, I'll confess to you, I didn't use your link. Uh, I uh, I used my Blu-ray. I'd never watched my Blu-ray of <laughs> Once Upon a Time, uh, and uh, it is quite beautiful. Uh, so I, I, I was I was pleased. I, I, I was a little bit apprehensive, I suppose, because I know it's it's quite militantly unengaging in a way. Three, four, five. As a, as a piece of television, there are there are bits where they're just shouting numbers at each other. Five, six, I was thinking. Five. Uh, now that I'm now that I'm an old intolerant man with all this uh, uh, avant-garde stuff, just leave me cold. But uh, go go solve a crime, types of aliens. Uh, but uh, no, I, I I still thoroughly enjoyed it. And the moments that had sort of really seared into my memory were still there and as good as I thought. So that was that was great. Well. Then I mean you've you, you've already started on this task, but if you can, if it's possible, can you for for the uninitiated just briefly talk people through what happens in this episode, which, as you say, is, is called Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time is as it it was not. I understand, having done my research over the years, originally intended to be uh, the penultimate episode of The Prisoner. It mm. was uh, it was repurposed for that. But the Prisoner, of course, I, I, I'm sure everyone knows, is is trapped in a strange village. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. 
where his secrets are, are, are being extracted from him, or they're attempting to extract his secrets from him, and they try every trick to destabilize him and interrogate him and frighten him and disorientate him. He never knows where he is. He never knows which side has tracked him. Who are you? The new number two. And in this particular episode, as a sort of, as a, a last desperate flail, uh, they regress into childhood. Wash and dress quickly. I'll show you some nice things. And lock him up for one week with Leo McCarn. One teeny weeny week, my boy. Neither of us can leave. Till death do us part. And a, and a small butler. Uh, regress into childhood and play out various uh, authority scenarios trying to break him down. And so we come to another graduation day. But of course, uh, the prisoner being a man of extraordinary accomplishment, you see he slowly wakes up, slowly gets in command of what's going on and turns the table on his interrogators, which is a very exciting moment. Die! Die! Before we get into really discussing the story in detail, I kind of need to take your temperature as a prisoner fan. So short answers here um, and gut reaction. Firstly, in your mind, is number six John Drake? Yes and no. I mean, how do you answer that? Doesn't matter, probably. Okay. Neither John Drake or somebody incredibly like John Drake. They are certainly trading on his history there, since they never define him as a secret agent, particularly within the show. Mm. They're just relying on you knowing he's he's that bloke. Mm. And are you one of these people? I am not. But are you one of these people who has a preferred episode viewing order for The Prisoner. Gareth Roberts sent me his some time ago, which yeah. I think makes, uh, make, uh, makes a, a, good, uh, a good alternative. And I know the episode order is a bit shambolic. Mm. It's not really meant to be the way it is. And, uh, and of course, it belongs to the era of television, which was, it was universal then. People made shows so pretty much they could be shown in any order, apart mm. from the first and the last one. So I don't really. I tend to favour the order I first saw it in. Mm. Uh, uh, which is the traditional one. But uh, there are things wrong with that order, I think. It does leave Port Merion behind rather too much uh, towards the end. So it's been a while. I mean, I, I'm a fan of the series. I've certainly watched the whole thing maybe twice over. I'm not a super fan. But w what really struck me watching this, and I haven't seen it for about a decade, is the length of the title sequence. It's three minutes long. Now, does it earn those three minutes? Do you know, I, I, I was curious at that point myself. Uh, just to, And just about two hours ago... I played it to my 18-year-old son. I said, look, what do you think of this as a title sequence? And he did say several times, is this still the title sequence? <laughs> <laughs> is this still the title sequence? I said, yeah, it is. And he said, not still. Yeah, yeah, there's talking bit. This, they, did, they, did, they did this every week. Uh, and he was amazed at how long it was. He thought it was a bit corny, but mm. did think it was kind of cool. Um, mm. I, uh, for me, I absolutely bloody love it. I think mm. it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of storytelling. It's really punchy and sharp. And, and even though it's slow and, uh, you know, no, I didn't mean slow, I mean long. Mm. But you've got a lot of backstory. And because of its dreamlike nature, there is something compelling about every week reminding you he used to have this life, he used to have this car, he went off, he fell asleep 
and dream the strange dream is what it sort of feels like every week, doesn't it? I heard you there um, use the word slow and then correct yourself to long because it's not slow. And actually, I think that's often said of 60s telly. ITC shows of the period, I think, really stand up well in terms of pace. What it, what, why is that? What were they doing right? They're sluttishly concerned about keeping your attention. I mean, they're very good at, in other shows in particular. Mark Gators and I are always talking about this. How good they are at the pre-titles. My <laughs> goodness, they knew what they were doing in terms of putting out okay. They very rarely, that's not the case of The Prisoner, but they very rarely missed on that. And, they, and they're, they're constantly trying to entertain you with, our, with how it looks, with glamorous people, with exciting events, the big fight scene. Uh, you know, all those things are going on all the time. And it looks, they, you know, they do a good job of making, you know, uh, glamorous television and what, with what amounts to a shoestring. Mm. One of the things about watching uh, the, wonder, the wonderful uh, Blu-rays is you see uh, it's quite merciless on some of the, uh, on some of the sets. You sort of go, wow, <laughs> they're using the same set over and over again. And I can see the pieces of paper that put over that line switch. You know, that's, that's unfair to point out because it was made for a, a lower resolution world. But, you know, it's, uh, the, you know, the prisoner looks amazing mm. for the most part. It looks amazingly good. Mm. And rather timeless because of its strange setting. For the most part, you're not aware that you're watching what is really a very old piece of television now. Mm. Is the I mean, part of that is there's a neatness, there's a coherence to the visuals, the font, the design. I mean, is that tough to get on a show to get get? I mean, and is this because we've got Patrick McGoohan bossing everyone about? Do you think saying it's got to be like this, making himself a pain in the ass? Trouble is, Patrick McGoohan did seize the narrative a bit in terms of. Uh, the fact that he did it all by himself. Mm. Uh, Mark Stein might have a, a, a few views on that. That mm. might be less, uh, less complimentary, but I know he does or did. Um, so, I, you know, uh, yeah, uh, it's interesting, actually. I was going to say, I mean, my, I, I, have a, I have one radical thing to say about the, uh, the prisoner in general. Well, maybe, maybe everyone thinks this. Maybe no one thinks this. Maybe I'm about to be even more hated than I am already. And you've got to keep in mind that I'm a former Doctor Who showrunner and I didn't share a lot. So there are whole sections of the internet devoted to hating me. Uh, as you probably know, they made a run of 13 episodes, mm. uh, uh, including Once Upon a Time. Mm. And they stopped because uh, Patrick McGowan went off to do Ice Station Zebra. And then they made four more mm. after George, George Markstein, the co-creator, at the very least the co-creator, uh, had walked off the show. And he's a brilliant writer. He did Callan and so on. He was, mm. uh, he was really terrific, a seriously good writer. So you don't lose somebody like that from the show and not, you know, uh, take in water, as it, so, so to speak. That's, a, that's being hauled below the waterline, losing someone like that. And those four episodes are Living in Harmony, The Girl Who Was Death, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, and Fallout. Mm. Those are the four that they made in the second, uh, in the sort of a uh, follow-up block. And I don't like them. Uh, you I don't, don't like, like them. None of them, not even Fallout. No, not really, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I just don't think they're all that good. Um, Fallout has got some great visual moments. It has a certain lack of uh, discipline in the storytelling. Mm. Uh, uh, the absence of George, I think, is felt terribly. I think, and, and I'm not, uh, I don't object at all, not remotely, to 
its en enigmatic nature and its unresolved feeling and so on. Mm. I mean that, that I didn't. I never thought we'd find out who number one was. That's like finding out Doctor Who's real name. You're not allowed mm. to find out. Not, and I didn't want to know where the village was. That's not the format. I got that. I just got. I remember watching for the first time uh, with my then girlfriend and uh, and realizing the more Kenneth was it Kenneth Griffiths playing the judge. We desire that these proceedings be conducted in a civilized manner. I mean, my God, that was boring. But remind ourselves that humanity is not humanized without force. And it went on and on and on. And that errant children must sometimes be brought to book with a smack on their backside. And then you think, it can't get any more boring than this. And then Alexis Tanner stopped. You've never been with it, I mean with us. I'm gone, gone away. But you were here, then you went and gone. Got the word. Oh, yes, yes. The bright light, Dad. Got the sign. Sign? The light. Light? The message. Then you went and gone. Why? You said, oh, no, this is... Is, is the prisoner not going to punch anyone this? <laughs> Why has he suddenly decided to play along with a pantomime? Mm. Uh, and so, I, I, and then Leo McCarran lifts it a bit, and the the scene where he goes in and uh, and whatever the hell happens when he meets whoever the hell number one is, mm. um, is is actually beautifully done. It's very eerie and strange and well visualized. Patrick McGowan can read the rest. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed. Debriefed or numbered, but um, it, uh, by that stage I was lost to it. I thought this just isn't this. This is just a mess. I don't like it. That's really yeah, surprising because once upon a time one could potentially label those claims at edit. The prisoner is special, but not because it is a weird allegory. Uh, because there are many weird allegories in the world. There, I mean, that, that's, that's, that, that's, there's no shortage of that. Go to any student theatre and you will find a lot of it. Um, it was the fact that it was a combo <laughs> of a weird allegory and quite a good secret agent show. <laughs> yeah, that's literally the only time in creative history those two things have been combined in the same show. Mm. Uh, and uh, losing the severity of it, losing the rules of it, which is, I mean, once upon a time, it's a strange, strange show. Mm. But everything that happens within it is justified within the setup of the show. They are regressing into childhood. Uh, it's militantly strange and odd and quite unengaging at times. But it's riveting. You can't take your eyes off it. And mm. and and here's the two things that I, I I find difficult for me, and I appreciate other people who agree with me um, about Fallout is. Two of the mainstays of the show, two of the two mainstays of the storytelling of the storytelling are abandoned. One, the prisoner himself never joins in with the panther. Never. He knows it's he knows, look, this isn't real. I you can pretend it's an election, you can pretend there's another me, whatever you want, you can regress me to childhood, I will simply make my way back to adulthood. He doesn't join in with the fakery of it, ever. Mm. And that's quite important. He sort of says, this is a sham. I know it's a sham. I'm not like these other sheep. I'm not going to be part of it. Until Fallout, where he goes and sits in that chair for some reason. Why would he do that? The other thing is, and I think this is, again, just what I don't like, is that the, the whimsical, uh, apparent fantasy of the village was always the front of house part of it. Whenever you went behind the scenes at the village, a little bit like Disneyland, it was actually a very severe and frightening and military and scientific place. Mm. You know, the whimsy did not extend there because this was, this was a machine to break human beings. And behind the clown mask, there were fangs. 
And it felt to me in that one, oh, well, they're all being silly behind the scenes as well. Why are they doing that? Mm. You know, why is there a rocket there? I just, uh, I, I, I didn't go for it at all. I, actually, I'm, I, I'm, I'm post-rationalizing a little bit. I, I, I was mostly just bored. Yeah. Well, Graham, honestly, do you ever of an evening say, I think I'll play some segments from Kenneth Griffith's speech <laughs> uh, from Carlo. So great. Do you? Do you ever it's, do that? It's yet to happen in my life. Well, but if we talk about Once Upon a Time, it's sort of, I think, it teeters around the same kind of precipice because there's so many things about it that could be crap. There are scenes that are allegorical and it is almost like a drama class, sometimes workshopping different scenarios around the theme of why did you resign? Why? Why? why resign? It could have been risible, but it's not. But I think that teetering is maybe one of the things that makes it exciting to you, that this, this could, is about to fall over but never does. I think that's what the entire series does. Mm. It, it, it never feels quite one thing or the other. Mm. Just when you think it's gone a bit too mad, it, it goes a bit more ITC. Just mm. when you think it's a ITC, it goes a bit mad. So you, you, have that, uh, you have that constant tension, and there's at least some kind of surface tension to the narrative that keeps you, uh, you know, you know what number two is trying to do. Degree absolute. And you roughly know how he's trying to do it. And yes, it's, you know, if you're being, if you happen to like it, you'd call it ambitious. If you happen to hate it, you'd call it pretentious. But those words both mean the same thing. Mm. Uh, they just reflect the critical attitude of the audience member. Mm. Um, but yes, but it's so intense and so driving. And uh, to give all the credit where it's due, the two performances obviously are magnificent. They really are tremendous. Leo McKern's a miracle. He turns every line into something you could carve into a cliff. Afraid to prove you're a man. Your resignation was goddess, wasn't it? No! No! He's even better than Patrick McGurn. I think he's really wonderful. Watching this, actually, I was struck that if you came to this episode on its own, you could easily think this show is actually about Leo McKern's number two. He is the viewer identification character in this story, isn't he? The Prisoner says very little, number six. And this is nearly about Leo McKern, and he has a lovely line. I am a good man. I was a good man, but if you get him, he will be better. Which, that's a hero line, isn't it? Oh, it, it is his story. One of the incredibly intelligent aspects of the show is, while it's all about the prisoner's rebellion, it, it does occasionally question whether that just makes him a monster. Mm. And he's a bit monstrous in this. You snivel and grovel. I am. You crawl. Yes, look. To ask? Yes, to ask. Why? Uh, once he knows what's going uh, going on, he drives, as apparently he nearly did in real life, number two to a heart attack. Die! Mm. And, and he's disgusted with himself. Remember, he throws down the wine glass. He realizes what he's done. We shall need the body for evidence. That he is, uh, the, you know, the, the lone wolf trying to live in the society. You know, you can respect the lone wolf, but at times you sort of question, are you actually doing the right thing? Mm. Is this a good thing you're doing? And it's a very, very severe and intelligent show from that point of view. And I know what it's about. That's the difference. 
between once upon a time and fallout. I know what it's about. I mean, I can understand it. It's not, it's not uh, people talk about what's the, you know, what's the prisoner about as if it's subtle. You know, it's about as subtle as a message wrapped around a brick thrown through your living room window. It's really very clear what it's about. And I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to break him down. And at every turn, he's just rejecting the idea of breaking down. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that, that if you know what a story's about, you can more or less put up with anything, even completely absurd and impossible things happening. It doesn't really bother you. It doesn't bother you that it makes no sense. Uh, you know that they're in a you know a black wall chamber with a with some sort of I don't know caravanette attached to it. You, you don't really you don't really uh, question it at all, do you? Because you know what it's doing. It's a very di- disciplined and precise piece of television. So knowing what it's about, you know what it's about at the top level. But there are cogs that are spinning metaphorically and actually literally in the story. There are strange procedures, accoutrements, devices. Does I mean does McGowan himself? understand exactly what the world is that he's created and how it works or or is that even important does he does he need to i mean it feels to me but i've got no reason to suppose this is the case that patrick mcgoon gets out of this visceral level at a at a sort of animalistic at a sort of emotional level he gets it but maybe he's not quite giving it the maybe the intellectual overlay it also needs right i don't know if that's true or fair at all because i, I never met the man never knew him so maybe mm. that's but it strikes me that's what's missing from the four episodes that are made uh, once his collaborator leaves the show. Uh, and I, 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 I miss him. I miss his, uh, his storytelling uh, uh, brilliance, actually. Mm. But, you know, but, you know, again, credit where it's due. I think Patrick McGill is a terrific director. Mm. I mean, uh, one thing we, we must say about this, uh, uh, this show is I know a bottle show when I see one. I know a budget saver when I see one. And, oh, my God. They just had a black wall set. It's a black. It's a black box set, and they had props that they could have bought at a shop or they had in their in their storeroom. It's nothing. It's mm. there, and it's rather obvious. And on, on in the lovely Blu-ray, when the uh, when Leo McCarran thumps uh, thumps the uh, the door, totally encased in solid finest steel. Yeah, the whole door shakes. <laughs> it shakes. I regret to say, a bit like the Pandora cover. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's nothing, there's nothing there. And yet, it's a quite visually arresting episode, isn't mm. it? It looks great, it looks beautiful. Mm. There was a moment which I, it thrills me a bit. I remember the first time I saw it, and it's uh, my favourite moment. Just as uh, McGowan's on the turn, uh, on the, uh, uh, he, uh, Leo McKern is lying on the table, and, uh, and McGowan is... Uh, Sort of psychoanalyzing him. This is a recognized method used in psychoanalysis. And he and he says the word. Sometimes, Sometimes uh, the uh, the therapist and the patient change places. places. And as he does that, his head moves above the curves, and the two of them are in, inverted. You know, one face uh, faces traveling in different directions. Mm. Looking that very well, but it's uh, it's a just a very stunning moment, and it ends. And that moment ends with why I don't you resign? resign. Mm. And, wow, that is really that is really good. Uh, really, uh, I, I think, beautifully shot. I, I'm wondering, I mean, looking at this, I was thinking on set, you know, on the days when they were shooting this, and McGowan has uh, Leo McKern, you know, rotating that kind of spinning cog thing, and, and Leo might have said to him, what, what is this? Do you think he would be able to say to him, it's a whatever, or do you think that's hokum? It's, it's, it's just colour, it's weirdness. I don't know. I think there's... 
it, it, it looks to me that he had a, a set of brilliant instincts about the show, and maybe that's just one of them. Mm. Uh, and he was a lot involved, wasn't he, in the, in the visualization of it. Mm. Um, and I, I remember, I haven't watched the new version of The Prisoner, I was going to, to do, uh, for this thing, but I uh, didn't get around to it. And I, but I remember the reason I didn't watch it was it wasn't set in Port Marion. And I just thought, no, 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 you don't understand. That's the police box. You, no one knows why it works, but it does, and you don't change it. If you bring back the prisoner, you bet you put it in Port Marion or somewhere that looks like Port Marion, like any Italian village, in fact. But, you know, that, well, that was a brilliant idea. It's so vivid. Uh, that that place, that uh, that strange dislocated place, yeah. and I think that's a lot to do with McGowan, isn't it? He, uh, he he does a lot of the visuals for it. So, does, do you do, does that mean you feel that in some cases an aesthetic on telly can just work, even if people don't really know, even the people who are making the show, they kind of can't really say what it's for, what it's doing, what, but they can look at it and go, has, I mean, has, has that happened to you? Do you do, on a production where you go, well, it works. And people go, yeah, but what is it? You go, it works. Yes, it has. I think it's happened to everybody. You can make anything work adequately or even quite well. But when something works, so it so, becomes so dreadful word, iconic, uh, that it, it leaps out into the world. You don't know why. Mm. How could you know why? Uh, the, the, the best example is actually just to go Doctor Who for a moment. Why does a police telephone box, uh, why, why is that irreplaceable in Doctor Who? Mm. It's a telephone booth that we hardly ever had. It was for a very short time. It is far more famous and long-lived as a time machine than it was in its original form. It's, you know, it's a, the only, it's a time machine disguised as a time machine. It's because that's the only thing it's now associated with. Why is that irreplaceable? I don't know. Hmm. Uh, there is a, there's a wonderful, uh, uh, in uh, Sherlock, we have a wonderful 221B, which I think is a, uh, the, the set of uh, Sherlock's uh, living room. And I think that's a wonderful set. Hmm. It feels absolutely magical every time I walk onto it. And I think... I don't actually know why, because it's a scuzzy room. Mm. It's a beautifully disguised, disguised, uh, dis- designed, sorry, scuzzy room, but it's a scuzzy room, and yet uh, it, it, it works better than it should, and uh, it's smiley face spray-painted on the wall. and the, well, I, I, I don't think you do know when something launches into the world like that. If you think of The Prisoner, you have a very particular visual image don't you and it's not even the big wobbly balloons it's it's port mary and all the green all the people in their silly outfits and their blazers and their umbrellas mm. there's a very practical choice for uh, if you happen to be shooting in wales <laughs> i hadn't thought of that that's the, yes that's absolutely uh, common sense I, I can't make up my mind when we're watching this and you know as we know this was part way through the production of the series so he, he wasn't the kind of lone voice that he was i don't know if he's self-indulgent as a creative person or highly disciplined and it seems weird that those two extremes are the only two conclusions i can come to where would you put him on that c- kind of scale i think he needed uh, his collaborator i think mm-hmm. he needed George, i think mark Stein. Uh, i think he needed the i think the, the, the two those two men were what made that show work? 
One pulled in the direction of a spy show, that was George. Let's make an exciting secret agent show that's all quite rational. Meanwhile, Patrick McGoon's pulling in the direction of let's make it Kafka-esque and weird. Mm. You put them together and you make something that the flavor of which is unique. It is nothing else like that that show has ever been or ever will be again. Because, it, it, because you know, the thing we haven't said enough about this is it works perfectly as an ITC adventure show. Mm. It's, it's a really good one. You like it for all the same reasons that you normally like those shows, in addition to the fact it's super brainy and, uh, and clever and has all sorts of layers of meaning to it. But also, you know, when it comes right down to it, he does also go and punch a lot of people. And that's right. Mm. You know, and he's very heroic and he looks good and all that stuff. So I think I think, uh, I think that I think they, they, they pulled at each other in a creatively interesting way. I think uh, once once George is not there uh, doing that, I think it's I, in my view. I just don't. But can I just ask you, Graham? Mm. Obviously, you like Fowler, and I know lots mm. of intelligent people actually love Fowler. I just I, I, I still. I still wonder how many T-shirts they've got with Kenneth Griffith's dialogue on it. But okay, <laughs> you really, really love all that really long talky bit with their chairs. What did you think of Living in Harmony and the Girl Who Was Dead? Well, okay, so Living in Harmony. I mean, this has been a long time since I've watched them. So I do recall really enjoying Living in Harmony and liking the whole kind of layered... Um, reality and perception of it. It did also feel a bit like a kind of an abrogation of responsibility, though, towards the show in a sort of, let's just not do the show uh, this week. The Girl Who Was Death, that's, that one's very comedic, isn't it? Is that right? It's, it's a bit of a caper. Yeah. Is he Potter? It's our former Siberia. What was the colonel up to? Dr Snips, crazy scientist. For the last 26 years, he's been building a super rocket to destroy London. Yeah, I don't... I mean, maybe the fact that I can barely remember that episode probably tells you about my response to it, I think. Well, what's your what's your beef with Living in Harmony? I, I recall it as being very um, uh, very dense and exciting. Uh, I'm just... Again, I think it's a bit boring. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I love the idea. I absolutely love the idea. It's, to be clear, I think it's a brilliant idea. Mm. And the fact that they don't tell you what's going on. Mm. It's just a horse coming from the distance instead of a car. And he quits from, and it's a sheriff quitting from a town. You think, what? Uh, and you think, oh, wow, I don't know what's going on, but I can't wait to find out. Mm. What you do is wait to find out. And what it's, I love Westerns. I just don't think it's a very good one. I think mm. I'm a little bit bored. The, the idea, I'm totally on board with. The moment that he, under when it's revealed what's going on, which we kind of, have guessed at some level. Fill him with hallucinatory drugs. Put him in a dangerous environment. Talk to him through microphones. It's always worked, and it would have worked this time if you had... But it didn't, did it? Uh, I think he's very fine, very exciting. But I just don't think that, you know, I just don't think the, the storytelling for the Western part was as good as it could have been. I, I, mm. I would be bored by it. Um, sorry, yeah. And I think the girl who was death, uh, who, who was death is... is is nowhere near funny enough. Mm, mm. I, don't, I don't know that I really care about that. But, uh, and the sort of reveal that he's reading a story. No more tonight, it's way past your bedtime. Come on up. And hanging a lot of kids in the village, but okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really. And, I, and how did, 
how did the planning meeting go down for that <laughs> way of breaking number six? Well, we've tried giving him in dreams. We've tried yeah, constructing a duplicate of him. This week, we're going to wait and see if he gives away anything. Well, if Gary just told not get it. Really? Uh, how did number two get in on that gig? I mean, come on. Does that make you think, then, that the format was was finite? It had only a certain amount of legs? Or do you feel that they kind of, they just stopped engaging with the format? I think we stopped engaging with it. Mm. I, I think you could make that format run for a lot longer, actually. I think it's a brilliant format. Mm. I, I think uh, if you start saying, I'm not sure we should be in Port Merion all the time, don't be daft, right? Mm. Don't be daft. That's your show. And there's plenty of stories you can tell within there. If you're bored of being in Port Merion, time for you to go and work on Danger Man too. Right? <laughs> um, uh, so, no, I, uh, I don't mean that. I think they actually is weird because... Watching it again on the on, especially when you work on Blu-rays, you are very very aware that they only have Port Marion for a very limited period. For a mm. few episodes, have location filming, and then they move to using a lot of stock footage uh, and uh, big studio sets that are really quite good and certainly good enough for uh, '60s television, but get exposed a bit mercilessly when you get onto uh, onto HD. Uh, but they're not actually shot there. Things like the Schizoid Man or yeah. Chinese Big Ben, they're nowhere near Port Marion. They're, they're recreated. Um, and, they, and occasionally they send out, you know, Patrick McGoon's unconvincing stunt double to walk around the hills. Uh, but it's clearly not him. Um, and then they abandon even doing that. Mm. You, I mean, I, I think the, the Nigel Stock episode is, is widely regarded as appalling, and it is. Mm. Um, the... Uh, uh, and then you've got living army, and you go with that. Oh, can we just go back to the village and then uh, and do and do the show that you promised us? Mm. Having said that, I think you could make you can make anything work. But uh, uh, no, uh, it, you can't get frightened of being of setting all your stories in the prison mm. when your show is called The Prisoner, right? Mm. You can't start worrying about that. You know, that's like saying, I think, you know, the Enterprise should have more sure leave. No. <laughs> I'm a rat. No, sir. I'm a fool. Not a rat. One thing I wonder would, if, you know, one was putting this episode into production, if people might have an anxiety of, you know, potentially with this kind of regression of number six to a state of childhood, potentially we're, we're diminishing his character. We're making him look vulnerable or silly. You will take six of the best. I'm not guilty, sir. In the event, that's not what happens. But would that be a concern if, if you're making a show saying, well, this is our leading man, our, our, our star character. Are we defiling them too much in this episode? I think it gets close to that. Mm. Has to behave like a child and then <laughs> Liam McKern actually canes him. Mm. You think, okay, what's going on here? Um... But, uh, and I think uh, there'll be many leading men who would get that script and say, I'm not doing that. Mm. Uh, but in this case, the leading man had written the script. So mm -hmm. the directors, he was fine with it. And it's a great performance from that point of view. Uh, because uh, one of the things that Patrick McGoon is fantastic at, fantastic actor, but he's, uh, he's very good at being a, a handsome, sexy, athletic leading man. Mm. He's very, very good at that. He's good at glowering his way through doors and, and looking cooler than everybody else in the room. And he doesn't get to do that in this one. He get, as you say, he gets to be the man who kills the hero. He gets to be the man who stands up to Leo McCann, who is mm. 
whose story it is. Uh, yeah, no, it's a it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to expect. Your uh, you probably wouldn't you probably wouldn't let James Bond do that. The dialogue you you refer to sometimes it's nonsensical. It's um, what's your your sense as a writer yourself? Because some of it doesn't sound writable. But I'm saying that as someone who, who doesn't do this for a living, it sounds like improv. How to your ear do some of those scenes sound? I, I I've got no expert insight, I'm afraid. I don't know. It sounds a bit improv to me, mm. uh, but maybe he did sit in a in, in a late night hotel room somewhere writing six and one, six and one, bop, mm. bop, bop. I don't know. Um, but it lo- it looks as though they were. It looks like they were dancing around it a bit. It's mm. a tightly constructed piece, but it looks like uh, it looks like some of that might have been uh, constructed that way. But I, I can't tell. I mm. think. It works tremendously, I have to say, but uh, uh, it's odd. Uh, and oh, what a brave thing to do to put that out. Especially when, when you consider, according to the original schedule, before they had to wrap it all up with, uh, in my view, four-week episodes, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, that was not, uh, they, they changed the ending. It was not supposed to be the, uh, the precursor to the big finale. Mm-hmm. Was just yet another way of breaking number six, and I'm guessing they were looking at their budget. And uh, Patrick McGoon was saying, "Okay, I'll do the one that's in the black box set with only our regulars and only our regular sets." Mm. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's very it's very clever from that point of view. Some of the other lines uh, are just jewels. Why did you Why resign? Did you resign? For peace. For peace. peace. You're much admired for your, you know, the quality of your dialogue, the wit of it. The, how good is is McGowan at that kind of stuff? I mean, I actually think he's he's possibly underrated when uh, in terms of how good he is at those kind of lines. I, I think the uh, the writing that episode is terrific. I think generally speaking, I mean, uh, and, and much of Leo McGowan's dialogue is uh, is superb. Mm. Uh, it's it sort of uh, it's it's hard to tell. You know, uh, find missing link, and then the next bit is put it together. It's a weird way of putting it, you know, and I, just, yes. I, just, I found all of it uh, on the verge of being some ghastly bit of student agitprop or something, but uh, it's, it's by, by teetering there in a high wind uh, and daring you to object, it gets to something that is really quite oppressive. I mean, how, how entertaining it is, I don't know, but my God, you can't mm. take your eyes off that screen. Uh, and the why, why don't you resign is, is wonderful. It's really wonderful. Um, and actually the ending, the, uh, the altered ending, the cliffhanger, what do you what desire? Do you desire? Number one, I'll, I'll take, take you. It. It's just, it's very, it's, it's quite thrilling. He, he really knows what he's doing. Let's talk a little more about the performances. I mean, you mentioned particularly Liam McKern um, is staggering. Uh, it's maybe a cliche for me to assert that are these performances of an old type of TV acting, uh, they're, they're magnificent and huge. Is it a fallacy for me to say you don't really get those kind of actors anymore? I think it probably is. A, I mean, yeah, I think you've still got big, grand performers. Uh, you know, I think if, you, I mean, uh, if you're doing The Prisoner now, my God, you'd have Mark Gatiss in there, wouldn't you? Hmm. You're not haunted by the war, Dr. Watson. You miss it. I need to give you all that. <laughs> uh, well, I think I, I think those people are 
Ireland. Absolutely. It's a very theatrical style. Mm. And Leo McCann is not exactly typical of anything, is he? Mm. Untypical actor. He's a, you know, a, a strange, squat, profoundly ugly little uh, Australian who is absolutely riveting in everything he ever does. Of course, we, we all love him as Rumpel. When London is nothing more than a memory, and the old Bailey has sunk back into the primeval mud. My country will be remembered for three things. The British breakfast, the Oxford book of English verse, and the presumption of innocence. He's amazing. And Patrick McGowan is, uh, I mean, there is a, you, you don't really expect a character to, for it to be possible for a character to be, to be half James Bond and half Richard III, do you? <laughs> it's, it's such a weird thing. And it's so arresting. And he's he's also handsome and funny and charming and all the things you've got to do. I mean, it's interesting too, because I also watched a bit of uh, Chimes of Big Ben, because mm. uh, McKern is, is also in that. And that's a, in some ways a, a quite basic episode of The Prisoner with the most transparent ruse they ever came up with. <laughs> Try and pretend he escaped. Oh, come on, Patrick, you really have. Mm. Uh, but the dialogue in it is absolutely terrific. Late in seven moves. How many do you know? A few more. We must play sometime. You, you, you could watch for hours the two of them just bantering. Certainly we must. By post. <laughs> I must add sense of humour to your file. In that slightly more relaxed way they had in that episode, where they, they almost seem to like each other. <laughs> I really must bring your file up to date. Uh, it's really good, really good. You can see why, you could see a world in which they just have Liam McKern every week. Though I have to say, I think one of the great, uh, great genius ideas in the president is just every week, largely without any explanation whatsoever, it's just somebody else's number two. Who are you? The new number two. As a demonstration of faceless authority is genius. It's genius. And I believe it was Patrick McGill, I think I read somewhere that said, let's just never explain why there's a new number two. There just mm. is. There just is. Uh, and you never see it uh, sort of extrapolated. So I think that's I think that's hugely clever. Well, you know, when they're together, I mean, there is, we can't deny it, there is a lot of shouting. Stop staging and confidential! Why, why, why did you resign? There is a lot of nonsense. It's never silly, though. What stops it from being silly? Oh, kind of, a kind of sweaty intensity. Oh. I mean, that shot I was talking about where the two of them, like, when he's hanging over McCurran on the table, they are both properly sweating. I was wondering, were they being sprayed or did Because <laughs> that looks like a hot light they're under. I, I wonder if they are just sweating. Uh, I think just sheer conviction. Uh, and there is something uh, magnificent when you can, you know, you've got a tiny butler shaking a rattle in a... In a you know, in a playground and all that. How are you going to ever take this seriously? You do. You think life and death is on the line right here. It's, well, I think the word is intensity. They just take it bloody seriously. Um, does that need a lot of trust? I mean, if you're on the, you know, whenever you're on the, the floor, maybe when Sherlock or Doctor Who is filming, do you have to sometimes take it on trust? You're looking at this and you're thinking, oh, is this going to be a bit... Or, I mean, or, or does one know when one is in the studio, oh, yeah, this is working? But generally speaking, with good actors, uh, just do that. Mm. Even if they privately 
think that this is a load of old nonsense. Uh, they, they come in and they give it everything. Mm. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's one of the things that every actor playing Doctor Who has to has to go through a rite of passage with. Mm. Is you remember Peter Capaldi having to have an argument with what he absolutely realised was the length of vacuum cleaner. So you saw a star being born and you learn something. He had to play this scene very seriously. And you know, you can't you can't let it show. <laughs> you can't let these absurdities show. Um, in writing the episode, my feeling is that one of McGoon's biggest challenges it has to be ensuring that the audience believe in this switch of power between number six and number two when it happens. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sam's eyes, Sam's teeth, Sam's taste, Sam's everything. Did that strike you as well? That's one of the perils, isn't it? That if, if we don't go with it, then the whole episode kind of, you know, the bottom falls out. I mean, in part, you are waiting for your You're made to wait a long time. Mm. Get patient with him. Because at the beginning of the episode, he's at his most arrogant. How? He's walking around, he's menacing people in the village. Do that. What? Inquire. What's your number? What? Your number. What is it? He's been the cock of the walk at the start. Uh, and he, uh, and then you see him reduced to this infant, and it's you're sort of saying, "Oh, come on, punch someone, punch someone, then run through a door and punch more people." That's what you do in this show. Um, and and he doesn't, and he doesn't, and he doesn't. And you think, is he starting to wake up? No, he's not waking up yet. Oh, he's back. He he thinks he's on a plane now. Oh God. So you are sort of thinking, "Oh, I've missed you." When uh, when that great moment happens, your mind. Beautifully delivered, better telling. I don't think anyone would dispute that. No, I mean, and it does work, and it's very convincing, and it feels as if this is the resolution of a struggle. But are you saying, sort of saying there, that actually part of the reason this works is because we're just waiting for it? We want it to happen. We're waiting to see this. One thing you can tend to forget as one gets very deep and profound about mm. the prisoner is he's also a hero show. Mm. The prisoner's bloody amazing. He can do anything. Mm. Uh, he can make art that you can convert into a boat. You know, this This is I, one of the things I liked as a man when I was quite young was just, what's he an expert at this week? <laughs> I, I like that. That, that. That's a big deal. And he can just beat everybody up. So it's, uh, it's a daring decision to take this big menacing Irishman and turn him into a, a kid. And yes, being forced to wait to see it. Mm. Uh, I know that is, that's exciting. Good judgment in his part. But it made me think, for example, you know, the Zygon version, which you co-wrote with Peter Harness, which has a big scene where the Doctor makes a speech that kind of changes people's minds. Game, Kate. This is a scale model of war. Every war ever fought right there in front of you, because it's always the same. When you fire that first shot, no matter how right you feel, you have no idea who's going to die. Now, you must agonise, don't you, as you go into this thinking, well, this speech has got to be fucking good. <laughs> yes, you do, I mean. Because yeah. if you can make a speech that makes people turn away from evil, why we haven't, why haven't we made it already? Yeah. I'm always worried about that. Yeah, yeah, losing your temper with people actually worked. We'd already be in paradise. But uh, he's Doctor Who. He's Doctor Who. He's being played by Peter Capaldi. I just, I just um, yeah. 
Yeah. Do you thinking is? It's just a fancy word for changing your mind. Does it take faith in your own ability as well, though, Stephen? Because you, you've, you've set yourself this challenge. Do you get to it and think, oh, OK, I'm going to do this? Or, and is there part of you thinking, I can't kind of write around this? I am going to embrace it and go headlong into it because it takes a bit of guts, doesn't it, to, to say, I'm going to write this scene where this happens. I think if you have faith in your own ability, the, uh, the technical term is psychopath. <laughs> faith in your ability, what the hell does that mean? You know, there's no such thing, no such thing. No, you think I'm going to work very, very, very hard on this mm. and it might or it might not work and sometimes there have been moments where you think ah didn't, didn't really pull that <laughs> oh i thought i was going to but i didn't uh and yeah no you have faith in your ability no that, that, that's don't don't the things that you have to uh and always say to young writers is don't say you you have a vision no you don't hmm. i say well, faith in your ability my, 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 my artistic vision is being compromised don't <laughs> no work incredibly hard, try not to lie, mm. admit when you've been caught out and be and do it over. Mm. And maybe some of the time, maybe as much as 20% of the time, you might make something that doesn't make people want to throw up. <laughs> but, um, no, but the, those are them's the odds. You know, that's that's what you know, most days you write rubbish. Mm. In the opinion of many, every day. But, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. No, faith in your ability. God, no. So does that mean you do or you don't like notes, people, you know, feedback on, on what you write as you're going through it? <laughs> I mean, whoever likes being told that the thing that they, they did, that they hoped was maybe marvellous, isn't so great. Mm. Uh, but um, I don't think anyone ever likes the, the feeling of going in. But no, notes are absolutely essential. And you always get and you must always get them. And um, I try always to find a response. I, I, I think leaving a note unanswered is, oh, you better be, you're very brave if you mm. do. I've done it a couple of times. I've resisted notes. And I uh, one made two, two, maybe three times. And uh, on every occasion I've done that, I've been wrong. I've wow. Been, yeah, you know, it's not that the note is necessarily right. Though mm. usually it's fairly right because, uh, yeah, you know, most most people you're dealing with are pretty smart. Mm. Lucky I've been dealing with all these extremely smart people. Uh, but there's uh, well, why I'm always telling writers uh, in my boring old man way is if you don't like anything about the note, look at where the note happens in the script. Just look mm. at never mind what they said. Something caused this person to lay outside your script and make a note. Maybe they're not right. There's quite a high probability they're not right about what made them lay aside the script and pick up a pencil. But something did. They hit something. So look, just, just look at the geography of it. They were reading fine, mm. and then they decided to write something down. People are fundamentally lazy. They don't write things down if they can get away from it. Mm. So, so there's something there. There is always something there. Mm. And if you can find a way that doesn't make you upset, that uh, makes you think you've made an improvement, if you can find an improvement that works in that spot, I bet you it, 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 it will do the job. Mm. And so, well, even if it's not addressing the note, it kind of takes care of the note. I, I'm also a note giver. Right. Um, and so I, mean, I give a lot of notes, in fact, over the years. And that's one thing I'm always saying is I don't 
no, I'm not necessarily right. Please don't write down what I am telling you, don't write down what I say. Mm. I'm just saying something. And maybe it's rubbish and maybe you've got a better idea. Just, but I, here's what I think about this. Or I was a bit bored here, all right? I thought that would be funny, but it's not. Mm. Um, you, you know, it's, it's just, it's very often the detail of the note, even uh, from the best note givers in the world will be wrong. Mm. Very often they'll say, I think what you need here is this, and that's not what you need at all. It's something else. But there's something there. There's something there that's not right. So don't walk away from it without doing something about it. This is one of those very difficult, reductive questions. But can you recall a note that you were given that, in retrospect, you're like, that was, that was a real gem. That saved me or that elevated me? Or um, God, that's really, really tough. Um, they can be quite slight things. Um, I know I resisted. Uh, I talked about that recently. It was, uh, was Lindsay Olford, now Lindsay Minchin, uh, mm. gave me a note on Doctor Who saying, I don't understand why Amy comes on to the Doctor. Why did I leave my engagement ring off when I ran away with a strange man on the night before my wedding? Yeah. Hmm. You really are an alien, aren't you? And I said, because it's funny. Mm. It's funny. <laughs> Nobody liked it, and I don't mm. like it. Right, and I, uh, and I should have listened to it. Um, other notes, uh, Julie Gardner gave me a note at the end of uh, Forest of the Dead. Now and then, every once in a very long while, every day in a million days when the wind stands fair and the doctor comes to call. Everybody lives. And said, I think uh, River Song should just be talking to the little girl in the library, not to the other two kids as well. Sweet dreams, everyone. I again resisted that note. She was right, I was wrong. <laughs> so that is a Notes that I got that actually um, were improvements. I, I remember. Um, this, this is a very small one of all the brilliant notes that Russell's given me over the years. This is rather a small one. Uh, when I was doing Blink, it was called Sally Sparrow and the Weeping Engines. Mm. Uh, for ages, and, and they said, Can it be? And we got another title because we don't like that one. And uh, I said, Okay. And I suggested Blink. Uh, and uh, and Russell uh, sent me an email and I said, Yeah, I'm absolutely, I've been meaning to write to you all day. That's absolutely, that's a great title we're calling it blank no question but hit that word don't blink hit that word in the script make it like a cheesy 50s trailer blink and you're dead so and thus was born the whole the, the don't blink throughout it and the ending where you actually go back to david Tennant saying don't blink mm. which easiest ultra cheese it really is but it's uh it so works so that was a great good luck um, there's a general note that, uh, that Russell often gives, uh, and I'm not sure he's ever given to me, but it's a great note that everyone should just uh, take on board permanently, which is, I want to know what everybody in the room is feeling. I want to know what they're thinking about this. Don't mm. keep it a secret. And that's a very, very good note. If someone actually is in that scene and you don't know what they're thinking or what they're feeling, you've missed a whole bit of the story. Now, maybe, of course, it's meant to be secret. That's fine. <laughs> but, it, but you should know it's meant to be a secret. 
when you know we discuss old telly and classics in inverted commas, it, the temptation is always to talk about how the themes are still resonant today. And one could you know argue that the prisoner is about restrictions on freedom and freedom of thought, physical freedom, freedom of information, which certainly are relevant topics now. But my feeling, and this isn't a criticism of it, is it's a very sixties preoccupation with those freedoms though isn't it i think it is i mean there's certain things about it that are now more obviously 60s than they were uh, in the 60s or even the 70s or in the 80s yes it does start to it is it is rooted in its time terror of technology and how we're all going to be spied on and mm. uh, but, 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 but there is such sophistication in how they handle that in that as i say it is not completely the case or completely obvious always that uh, number six is the good guy. Sometimes mm. I think he's, you know, we actually do need him to cooperate with the other villagers now and then. You know, this is, these people are trying to survive in this place. Uh, you know, you sort of, there's, there is genuine sophistication in it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's preoccupying. I think the idea of the tension between trying to be an individual and trying to cooperate with other human beings uh, the tension between the sort of, you know, uh, the idea we'll create a society that really cares for people uh, and the question, but will you, once you care for people perfectly, are they still free? Mm. Is that, that's, that's still around. That's the great battle between the right wing and the left wing. Really. Mm. And I'm not really quite sure where uh, the prisoner is coming down. There's a tendency to assume it's some sort of left wing parable. I'm not sure it is. Mm. I'm not sure it is at all. I think it's, uh, in some ways, it's a response to the, uh, the sort of uh, communism, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of, you, I, I, you know, uh, this, this artificially created society that answers to my every need. I don't want it. I want to be the lone wolf. I want to be on my own. Mm. Um, which, uh, well, as I say, it's too sophisticated to take aside. But I, I, I think those, those ideas are still very, very current. To what extent does the security the government for your government provides you limit your freedom? Um, tough one. If we take the last episode seriously and he does escape and blow up the village, a lot of people seem to get killed on the way out. Was that a particularly good thing to do? Mm. Is that nice? Um, well, where are all those people going to go, Patrick? You know, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to starve wherever that place is? Well, it's in Wales, but pretend it is. this would you like to have seen Magoon's James Bond <laughs> he was offered it wasn't he apparently he turned it down reportedly and reportedly yeah I mean I'm sure he was turned down uh, what he turned down was uh, an invitation to discuss it hmm. actors are always saying they turned down parts thinking yeah you know, <laughs> we, we suggested you came and talk about it you didn't you get offered it yeah um, but uh, but I yeah I mean I sort of think because he was Danger Man and the Prisoner I know what his James Bond was Mm. I don't think he'd even great in the love scenes. Uh, I think that's mm. the thing. <laughs> but uh, 
Um, yeah, well, obviously he's. I think he's an alternative James Bond. He's a bit more of an absent-minded professor in a way. I loved his character in uh, Ice Station. Before Zero. we go any further, I suggest that you get me there, put another torpedo up the spout, blow a hole in the ice, and get me there. Which is pretty indistinguishable from the one the prisoner, I suppose. That's like a dotty professor touch to him. So. Uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm happy with the, the version of Patrick the Green we've got. I think James Bond requires a sort of, a sort of, to, you to sort of unbend a bit and just be fun. And I, I wonder if Patrick McGowan's fundamental nature is always, you know, this show is maybe fun, but it's also good for you. did watching The Prisoner then this episode how did it fit into your day was it something nice to do was it I mean you said you're bored I uh, know I uh, I love I love The Prisoner it was uh, and actually because uh, I always obsess about things the moment I see them again mm. I doing bits of research and watching bits of documentary and, uh, and so on around it so I'll probably watch some more of them uh, and you know and indeed uh, this time around it occurred to me it occurred to me you know I, I don't I don't offer this up as a plot hole Mm. But there's one thing I'd never thought of watching The Prisoner. They want to know why he resigned, yeah? Mm. Why didn't he just read the letter? <laughs> I've never thought of that, and it, yet we see it in the elongated title sequence every week. But did they look at it and say, oh, we can't read it, it's private and personal. <laughs> Kidnap him and take him to Wells. It's a big, thick letter. I don't think... <laughs> He wrote in that letter, I'm resigning, and I'm not telling you why, because yeah, I'm really mean. And uh, in other news, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell else was in the letter except why he's resigning? How, how are you finding life then during these strange times that we're living in? I, I don't like it very much. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's an astonishing view. I mean, I find it alarming and disturbing uh, how vulnerable we are. Um, I, I, uh, I, upsetting. Uh, the, the, the amount of suffering that's gone on is just horrible. Mm. Uh, I worry desperately about. I mean, obviously you have to lock down, but I wonder if it's okay for me to lock down. But below a certain income, is the lockdown actually going to be worse than the virus? I worry. Mm. I worry about people about all these jobs that are not coming back, all those businesses that are not going to reopen. Is this is this going to be horrible, or are we going to be okay? I don't know. We've uh, I suppose we've been through things like this before. Um, I thought maybe uh, that well, you know, confined to my desk for uh, however many months it's been, feels like forever. Uh, I might write a lot. Mm. Not really. I didn't. I've not been. I've, I've done some work with this. I, it's not been. I was far more productive when I was very busy doing Dracula and mm. I was doing other stuff. Uh, I've just found the blankness of my days, the lack of other people to talk to, just walking past people in the street and hearing snatches of a conversation and then launching into stories in your head. Mm. I was missing. Uh, and I was complaining, to, and I was talking to other writers about it, saying I stopped Neil Gaiman, he was saying the same thing, he didn't, he's just not writing well. And I stopped doing Mark Gatiss, and I said, uh, you know, I, why am I not writing well when I'm confined to my desk? And he mm. said, hmm, possibly, Stephen, a global emergency is not a sabbatical. Mm. Uh, and that was, <laughs> that's quite right, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I've not, there's not, there's nothing good about this. Um, I, I've learned that I, that I really like people and I miss them. Uh, mm. I, I'm, I'm not cynical about that anymore. I used to think mm. I was a bit of a loner. I'm not at all. Um, and I, I want it to stop. I ache for it to stop and to get out there and for everyone, you know, it feels a little bit like we've all been a bit mad while locked in our houses and uh, we need to sort of calm down a bit, really, a bit. But um, I don't even know if that's true. I don't even know if that's true. That's probably nonsense. Um, have you been getting on? It's very strange. It's tiring. Do you find that? It's, it's just strangely tiring. On a Friday, I'm absolutely knackered and I'm not really sure why. And the other thing, and this is a weird analogy, but it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like you know, maybe your boiler's broken in the old days and you come home and you think, oh, great, I'm home. And then you think, oh, shit, yeah, the boiler, I've still got to deal with that. It's sort of like that going outdoors now. It's like, oh, shit, yeah, oh, God, yeah, it's broken, isn't it? And it's that low-level sort of remembrance of things not being right. Yes, things are just, everything's just, even things that are not badly affected are just a little bit affected. Mm. At best is a bit crap. Mm. A Newsnight interview will be done on somebody's malfunctioning webcam. Mm. We we used to have a better world than this. Um, so uh, I know uh, sadness and a certain blankness and uh, an inability. And I, I, other people seem to have suffered the same to measure time anymore. Mm. I, I either think we've been doing this forever or it started last week mm. because the days are all the same. Mm. Um, and it's it's like there are no landmarks, you know. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I do very, very much want it to be over. <laughs> Let's rally, because one must, showbiz. So, um, so this is going to be the last podcast, actually, in this current series. So let's find an upbeat note to end on. There must be some good things about these last few months. Uh, can you think of it? I mean, the, the Doc2 tweet-alongs, for example, I took a lot of joy in that and found them very escapist. I'm glad to hear that, but then the real world intrigued in that as well. Oh, now you've ruined it again, Stephen. Let's be upbeat. Uh, okay, my sons have never gone with each other. Mm. I, I, my 18-year-old my and my 20-year-old, who were one was off in Vancouver about to shoot a, 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 a Netflix show, and the other was at university in Boston. Both had to come home. I'm not very pleased about that. Mm. And they've always rather loathed each other. And about a month in, they spent the night drinking together. And my God, they were drunk. And <laughs> when I got in the morning, they'd become the best of friends. Wow. Um, that's, and that stayed. And, that, uh, and I thought, well, that would never have happened. That would never have happened. They were on different paths. One's a singer, actor. The other's a, a computer engineer. They would never have done that. Mm. And they would be confined uh, in their parents' house for a few extra months uh, and so I, I i'm grateful for that mm. uh, that they they sort of found their way to each other and understood each other through the uh, magnificent healing power of alcohol <laughs> so yeah that that's a good thing i like that i've been trying to learn french i know a lot of people have been doing that so i've been mm. trying to learn french because uh, i think it's really appallingly ignorant of me that i can only speak one language um and uh, i think when hopefully one day we all go out into the real world again i will never take any of it for granted again mm. so that's that's a that, that's a good thing that's a proper thing um and i well of course i got to talk about the prisoner which mm. uh, and i just i feel as well i always have to close off because i feel i was a bit censorious about aspects of the prisoner because uh 
uh, one has to say something interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a magnificent achievement. Mm. And while I'm never going to be a fan of follow, I just can't. It just bores me. Um, I do understand that much of the the fame and the significance and the lasting appeal uh, and vibrancy of that show comes from that episode because it was so relentlessly obscure mm. that people got angry about it and people got cross about it and so the show lived on. Mm. Had he walked into a room and unmasked Sean Connery, that would not have happened. <laughs> so so I, should, I should shut up. That's, it is my blindness to that episode that, uh, that is the problem here. Well, I feel like we've completed a very happy journey then together. So thank you, Stephen, for watching The Prisoner and thank you for talking to me about it. Be seeing you.